God's words to Acts chapter 26, if you would. And today you might want to have a pen and paper out. Uh, there's some of both on the back there if you need. Um, I can tell by looking at the clock already that there are several points that I have several scriptures for. And I'm probably only going to get to read one or two of them. And I'm going to give you the rest for you to dig deeper later. Okay? So be prepared to, to write down some references um, just because I know i got too much material already. So, anyhow, um, Acts chapter 26. Um, last week we, we did the second half of chapter 25. King Agrippa and Bernice arrive in Caesarea, and they are visiting Festus. Uh, if you call, they come in the, into the... Well, sorry, let me back up. Festus is setting the stage for Agrippa. He's talking all about Paul in, in uh, the, the case that is before him that, that he's supposed to send him to Rome because Paul has appealed to, to the emperor in, in his defense, but they don't know what to tell the emperor, what the charges are. So Festus is asking King Agrippa to help him out, give him some ideas. Maybe he'll hear the case, and, and maybe together they can come up with some charges that, that they can send to the emperor so that Festus doesn't look like a total idiot to the emperor sending this guy there for what reason? Why is he here? So anyhow, uh, as, as we're looking in chapter 25, verses 18 and 19, it says, when the accusers stood up, they began, and this is, again, this is Festus talking to Agrippa and Bernice. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. But they simply had some points of disagreement with them about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. We talked about how through, through, the, through the times that he's been char- being charged by the Jews in the Sanhedrin, that, that one of their charges originally was that he had defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the, to the temple. And, and one, we knew that that didn't happen, but uh, it was one of their trumped-up charges but Paul was slowly, as, as each defense was brought about, Paul was slowly able to drag it away from that and focus on the fact that this Jesus is actually resurrected from the dead. That he actually is alive. And, and that's Paul's point, whole point in his, in his defenses and in his messages here, is that Jesus is alive. I want to Read quickly from one of my commentaries. He said, The resurrection is seen to be indispensable. Paul kept on referring to it during his trials, not in order to provoke the Pharisees and Sadducees. I am going to disagree on that one instance where he used it to save his neck. But this, this guy says, Not in order to provoke the Pharisees and Sadducees into argument, nor only to show that he was faithful to the Jewish traditions, but because the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning and pledge of the new creation, and so at the very heart of the gospel. So Paul keeps bringing this up, and and Festus is telling Agrippa that um, he thinks this Jesus guy is dead, but that Paul is insisting that he's alive. And that, that seems to be what's upsetting the Jews that are bringing these charges against them, whatever they are, because Festus says they're not of such crimes as I was expecting. Because they had to do with theology and the Jewish Messiah. And, and that's not usually the kind of thing that was brought to the Roman courts. That was something the Jews would normally settle on their own. 
So uh, we, we saw in verse 23, on the next day, when Agrippa had come together with Bernice and amid great pomp, they entered the auditorium. All the commanders, all the bigwigs there, all the important people in town were, were there to hear uh, and to see the spectacle that, that was going to be set before them. And then last week, as, we, as, as Paul continues to defend the, the resurrection that Jesus Christ is in fact alive, we, we, we went into communion and we spent some time looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Write that down today. Spend some more time studying and reading that. We're not going to go back there today. But it, it's, it's just a wonderful uh, exposition on the resurrection and what it meant. And, and that if in fact he didn't, he didn't rise from the dead, that our faith is worthless. It's dead. Because Jesus is dead. But we know that that's not the case because Jesus rose from the dead so that our faith is alive. It is alive. And so um, and, and we pointed out that, that the book of 1 Corinthians was written while Paul was in Ephesus, which is about two or three years before what's happening right here today in front of us in chapter 26 when Paul's going to defend himself before King Agrippa. So th- this isn't just something new that, that's come on, to the, the, on Paul's uh, radar. It's just not the, the cool uh, buzz line or the buzzword for the week, okay? He's been talking about the resurrection for a long time. And today we're going to see when that started, when he started talking about the resurrection as we look at chapter 26 here, uh, verse 1. And Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Now, I, I'm not that uh, well aware of Jewish traditions in, in, in that climate back then, but when it says that Paul stretched his hand, it was not trying to get the crowd to be silent. It was a, a point of respect to King Agrippa. And, and then you're gonna, it's, he's going to follow it up with his opening statement. Verse 2, In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Okay? So, and, and, and we found out last week that, that Rome had appointed Agrippa uh, as the, the governing authority over the temple in Jerusalem. It was his responsibility to make sure that things ran well in, in you know, fairly or whatever uh, in, in the, the dealings between Rome and the temple. That was King Agrippa's area of expertise. And Paul is just acknowledging this here. And, and I'm sure that there's a young man named Eutychus that's glad that he's not present at this, at this scene today. Because if you remember, Eutychus is the one that Paul preached past midnight and he fell out of the window and died. Remember that? Well, Paul says at the end of verse 3 here, he says, Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. In other words, get the caffeine, bring in the coffee pots. This is going to be a long, this is going to be a long seminar, Okay. So settle in uh, and and get ready. So Paul begins in verse 4. So then, all Jews know my... Okay, wait a minute. Let me me give you kind of an idea of where we're going. There's going to be four four sections in here. We're going to try to make it to to verse 23 today. In verses 2 through 8, we have Paul the Pharisee. 
verses 9 through 11, we have Paul's persecution of the church. Verses 12 through 18, Paul's conversion. And then 19 to 23, Paul's response to, to all of this that's going on. And in, in a, in a spoiler alert, it's all about the resurrection, okay? Just, just in case you hadn't picked up on that yet. Um, it's about the resurrection. You, could, you know, the Sunday school answer, you always, if, you, if you answered God, Jesus, or the Bible, you were probably right. Well, any time today, if, if, if there's somebody asks a question, just say, resurrection, you'll probably get it right, okay? All right. Verse 4, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which was from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews." Why is it considered incredible among you people? And you can just see them kind of looking around the, the, the auditorium that they're in. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? After all, He is the author of life, right? So why should you be amazed? Why should you be stunned that, that He would raise from the dead? Well, first of all, in verse 4, we have His reputation. The Jews knew what kind of man Paul was. What kind of reputation do you have to your neighbors in your community? Are you that nasty neighbor that always complains about this or that? Or, you know, if, if somebody's playing, you know, having a picnic in their backyard and they're playing their music a little too loud, how, how do you react to that? What, what kind of reputation do you have to people in the church? What kind of reputation do you have to people in the community where you work? With your family. Hopefully most of them live out of town, right? No, just, just kidding. What kind of reputation do you have with your family? Are you the grumbler that always complains about Thanksgiving dinner that nothing is done right? How, what, what, what's your reputation? Paul had a reputation. Paul had a reputation as being a very strict Pharisee. And with that, there was a lot of connotations. I, he says at the end of verse 5, he lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our, our, of our religion. He said so, and, and remember, King Agrippa knows what he's talking, knows what Paul is talking about in this manner. Agrippa understands and knows what the, the Jewish traditions are and what it means to, to be a Pharisee and to live as a Pharisee. Verse 6 is key in this section. I know I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. In the Old Testament, there are many, 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 many prophecies talking about the Messiah coming. And, and as he said, to which the twelve tribes hope to attain, they earnestly serve God night and day. Night and day, the Jews prayed for the Messiah. They, want, they were looking for the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come because it was all through the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to come. 
Look, look with me briefly at Isaiah 53. I thought I had a marker in there so I could flip right to it. Isaiah 53. Um, who, believed, who believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should have attract, been attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away as for His generation who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death, because he had, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand." As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. This was nothing new to the Jews. It was, it was, in, their, it was in their writings. It was part of their history. They knew that the Messiah was going to suffer. They were told that Messiah was going to suffer for them. Turn with me to Psalm 110, if you would. Read, read the whole chapter later. I'm going to read the first three verses. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth the strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. You can, you can keep, it's a familiar passage. But what, what Paul's trying to do here to, to Agrippa is to say, Agrippa, this, this, is, this is Judaism. I, I'm... I'm not that far from the, what the Pharisees are saying here. I am a Pharisee. The, the word that our fathers were given is the word that I'm preaching and teaching. Back to Acts. 
I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. I'm not making something up here. This is who we are. This is the history of the Jewish nation. We, in our writings, we have seen this coming. We, we have known that Messiah was coming. It's not like I'm just out, way out in left field. I'm not making this up. This is, this is who we are. Again, verse 7, the Jews, basically, they prayed for it day and night. And, and yet, as we know in the Gospels, that it says that I, I, Jesus said, I came to my own and my own received me not. They, they were looking so hard for Him that they didn't see Him when He came. If that makes any sense. The Messiah. They, they, and again, they, they expected a, a political Savior. They weren't necessarily looking for the, the spiritual Savior. But Paul says, this, this is who I am. This is my reputation. People know this about me, but I'm not making up anything new. Verses 9-11. through 11, Paul's persecution of the church. So then I thought to myself that I had many things hostile to the name of Jesus Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and became furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. We, we know this about Paul. And it wasn't like this was just a little irritant to this guy. This was the focus of his life, was, was to destroy these Christians. Saul of Tarsus sincerely believed that Christianity was a delusion. Saul of Tarsus was convinced that his duty as a Pharisee was to, impose, was to oppose Jesus as an imposter. Saul of Tarsus believed and it was sincerely believed that Christianity was a delusion and that Jesus was a deceiver. And Saul of Tarsus was sincerely wrong. How does he find that out? Okay, we're on the way to Damascus. I just wanted to point out something too. One of the speakers yesterday, Second uh, Timothy uh, one one seven, saying that we're not, we don't God does not give us a spirit of fear but He gives us the spirit of love and of a sound mind and self-control. Thank you. Fear is not an emotion. Fear is not a feeling. Fear is a spirit. Okay, and this is, uh, this is from the guy yesterday. This isn't mine. I've got to give him credit, although I don't remember which one it was. Fear is a spirit. Second Timothy 1.7 tells us that that does not come from God, the spirit of fear. So where does it come from? Yeah, it comes from Satan. Right on. The spirit of fear comes from Satan. So that you know, a few years ago, when our nation was told to be in fear, 
That didn't come from God. That was straight from hell. That was straight from Satan. Respect it, yes. Be cautious, yes. Be clean, yes. Take precautions, absolutely. We don't need to be stupid. But we don't need to live in fear either. Because that is from Satan. Satan wants us to live that way, not God. God wants us to have a a spirit of of love and of a sound mind and self-control. Paul here, as he's persecuting the church, was all about the fear factor. If he couldn't couldn't kill them or get them thrown in prison, at the very least, he wanted them to be afraid that Paul was coming. So Paul's now on his way, and it says in foreign cities. Is that at the end of verse 11 there? Yeah, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And on one of those trips as he's heading to Damascus, verse 12, While thus engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. See, the chief priests knew what he was doing. The chief priests were backing him. The chief priests were giving him letters to go to foreign cities to do it. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was their hero. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Wow, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, I'm not going to try to rush through it. I'll, I'll go through some of it and we'll just pick it up next week because there's, there's too much good stuff here. Um, so he's, he's still on his way persecuting the church. And he heard a voice in verse 14. Now I want you to look back with me, if you would, to Acts 9-7. There, there's three times in Acts that Paul... Uh, well, the one time he lived it and the other two times he's telling us about it. But there's some, some question, uh, some, uh, some say a discrepancy in, in the Scriptures here. But Acts 9-7, The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice or sound, but seeing no one. I, I know when I had a... a, a Heart cath done about six years ago. That would be six six years this Wednesday. Um, when when they when when they do you a heart cath, the way they work the anesthesia is they don't completely knock you out because halfway through I can't remember if they if I had to turn on my side or if I had to cough or something. There was I needed to be alert enough that I that I could hear what they were telling me. Now the whole time you're, you're I, I was kind of between here and there, kind of in limbo. And I could hear him talking. I could hear the voices. I could hear him laughing. 
But I couldn't tell you a word they said. And so this is, this is kind of the, the, the same scenario or the same idea that we have here. They, they, they heard something being said, but they, they didn't understand it. They didn't know what was being said. They heard a noise. Okay? 9-7 there. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. And, and then if we'll look, um, 22, I think it's 22-9. 22.9, where, where he was in a previous defense, he was sharing this. And he says, And those who were with me beheld the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And here it says they heard a voice, but in 9 it says that they heard a sound. So just a, a, a little explanation there, there's... there's, there's uh, discrepancies they say in the word because sometimes it said they heard a voice and it was, sometimes it was just a sound. Um, I, I think the best way I can describe it is, is kind of being in and out of that. They, they, they weren't, God, Christ wasn't there for them. Christ was there for Paul. Christ was there for Paul to get the message. He, he wasn't there for the, the others that were traveling with them. Okay? So th- this was focused and so God, God made sure that Paul heard but the others didn't need to hear or understand what was being said. Said Paul, or excuse me, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What, what, what does it mean by goads there? Okay. To get them going. So to get our attention. And the, and the word picture here that, that Christ is using with Stephen, or with, excuse me, with Saul, was the, the goats that he was kicking against were the believers, the ones that he was there to persecute. Because he, he was coming up against them thinking that he was doing the right thing. Though he was, he was sincerely wrong, okay? But he was coming up to, to push against them and, and God was basically telling him to stop. Verse 15, I, again, is, if, put it back in context, Saul is, is talking to King Agrippa. I said, Why are, who, or who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. I'm going to leave it there. And we're, we're going to start there next week. Um, to a, and I'll probably use the same title to the message for next week. <laughs> But arise and stand on your feet. Paul's whole point to this defense and his, his whole point of, of standing up to preach the gospel and to teach truth to the Pharisees for them to hear 
is so that they might understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That they, because that is where our hope is. And again, if you read 1 Corinthians 15 this week, you'll see that if Christ does not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. Our faith is dead. And so that's why it's such an important part of the message that Paul wants to put across, and he wants the, the Pharisees to hear, and he wants King Agrippa to hear. Because this, this, this whole passage here is, is uh, although it's got many different aspects to it, and there's di- the different parts, because he is talking to the Sanhedrin, they're present, he wants them to hear. At the same time, he's preaching the gospel to Agrippa, because he wants King Agrippa to also come to know the Jesus that he knows, and that he might have eternal life through Jesus Christ. So, uh, read, read, spend some time in 1 Corinthians 15 this week. And, and then, of course, here, read uh, and, and prepare for next week. But uh, arise and stand. As we say to, to, to stand firm, um, we'll, we'll get into a little more of what that means in, in the context uh, here, here in Acts. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Paul stood for truth that once he had so been so against Jesus, when once he knew the truth and saw the truth, he was just as adamantly and strongly for it. Father, in our lives, help us to stand strongly for the truth, to stand strongly for the Word of God, that we would be willing to sacrifice our lives as in Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain, that we might look forward someday to being more with You than more in this body here, Father. Thank You for Your Word and for the testimony of Paul. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a lingering